Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 to the end of the chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But God, but Daniel, rather, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than all the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you with grateful hearts, grateful hearts that we can approach your throne because of what your son Jesus Christ has done on our behalf in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we understand, Father, that we have been called to come and to hear your word preached, to hear your word declared. 
And Father, we know that we are unfit for these things. I am unfit to preach. They are unfit to hear. And so we pray that you would come and strengthen and empower us by your spirit. So this would not just be an intellectual exercise. Rather, it would be a means of grace by which we relate with you and our hearts are changed and drawn closer to you. So Father, we pray that you would glorify your son through your word, that we would see him exalted, that we would see him as the king of kings and lord of lords, and that we would tremble rightfully before your word. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, my wife Kristen and I just recently got back from uh, one of our, our, well, not one of, our big summer vacation trip. I don't know if you guys have any of those planned. Hopefully you do. They're a lot of fun. But this was a trip that we were really looking forward to. We've been looking forward to it for, man, four or five months. Kristen did all the planning, but I did a lot of just thinking about it and looking forward to it. And the reason that we were so excited about this trip is because we were going to the East Coast. And neither my wife or I have spent a whole lot of time there. And we've always wanted to because there's so much history. I mean, as a country, we're really not that old. But any of the history that we do have is back in the East Coast. And so we were so excited to spend a couple days in Old Town Alexandria in Virginia. And we were excited to, to walk Pickett's Charge in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And then we were going to finish the trip by spending a couple days in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And we were just like, I don't know how well you know my wife or I, but we are extremely patriotic people. We love America. We are thankful to God that we're citizens of this country. And so for us, we were just like kids in a candy store. I mean, we got to do a tour of the Capitol, just magnificent, incredible um, structure. We were able to see the Library of Congress. We went to the uh, National Archives and saw the actual Declaration of Independence and the actual Bill of Rights and the actual Constitution. I mean, we were so excited, so excited. But see, it was in the midst of all of that history and all of that sightseeing and all of our patriotism and excitement that we had to grapple with the cold, hard truth that America is Babylon. And I know that's an odd statement for me to make, and hopefully you don't misunderstand what I mean by it, but here's what I mean by it. See, throughout Scripture, Babylon, though it's an actual nation, an actual country that existed in history, is used symbolically throughout Scripture to represent the city of man. That is, the world structure as it is opposed to God. And you see, as great as America is, and as patriotic as I am, America is a part of that world structure. So therefore, America is a part of Babylon. And I'm not just picking on America here. Any any land you go to, any country that you choose to live in, is going to be Babylon. But America's no exclusion to that rule. And guess what? It's always been Babylon, even under the founding fathers. And here's the thing that's kind of sad about that. There's nothing that we can do about that. We can't change Babylon, the city of man, into Jerusalem, the city of God. That doesn't lie within our power. It doesn't matter how much we pray 
or who we put in office or, or how involved we are in politics and our communities, America will always be a part of Babylon. There's nothing that we can do to change that. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for our country and engage in politics and our communities. But what it does mean is that none of our efforts will bring the kingdom of God down so that the city of God is here. You see, brothers and sisters, we live in exile. By God's grace, because of what Jesus has done, we belong to the city of God. But we live here in the meantime in the city of man. And the only person who can transform Babylon, the city of man, into Jerusalem, the city of God, is Jesus, the Son of God. He's the only one who has the power to be able to do that. And the good news of the gospel is that when he comes back, when he returns, when we see him coming with the clouds, Jesus will bring the new Jerusalem. Because when Jesus comes back, he will make the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and then he will reign forever and ever. But make no mistake about it, as we wait for Jesus, we live in exile. We live in a foreign land. We live in Babylon, even as our hearts long and look forward to Jerusalem. So the question that naturally follows is, How are we to live in exile? How are we to live in a foreign land? How do we live in this world without being of this world? What does that look like? Well, this morning, as we begin our study in the book of Daniel, we'll see that this book helps us to answer that question. And the reason it helps us answer that question is because in the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends are living in exile even as we are living in exile. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd much rather live in our exile than the exile that Daniel was living in. But regardless, we're both in exile. And so as we look at how Daniel lives in exile, we'll be able to answer the question, how do we do the same? How do we live in this world without being of this world? And the text gives us three answers to that question. Don't withdraw, don't compromise, and don't be afraid. So first, don't withdraw. We'll get back at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed them in the vessels of the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now before we jump into the book, I want to give you a little historical context here. This book was written in the 6th century B.C., 
And the author of the book is the book's namesake, Daniel. Daniel's the one who wrote it. And Daniel's writing this book while he's in exile to be an encouragement to others who will experience exile after him. Now, why is Daniel in exile? Daniel's in exile because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the great superpower of the age, Babylon, rolls into Jerusalem and easily defeats it. He besieges it and takes it over. But what made this defeat so demoralizing were two things in particular that Nebuchadnezzar did. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar raided the temple of the Lord and took all of the treasures of the Lord's temple and put them in the temple of his pagan god. You see this in in verse 2. And what Nebuchadnezzar was saying by doing this is, listen, Jerusalem, not only have I defeated you militarily, but my God has defeated your God. Your God's not reigning, my God is reigning. Because if your God was reigning, surely he wouldn't have let your, his city be overtaken and his temple be raided and all these treasures put in the temple of my God. You see, my God is ruling, my God is reigning. So Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just attacking the people of Jerusalem, he was attacking their God. And the second thing Nebuchadnezzar did, as we see in verse 3, is he commanded that the cream of the crop of Jerusalem be brought to Babylon. And what he wants to do with them is he wants to, verse 4, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So do you see what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here? It's brilliant. Here's his plan. His plan is to ultimately defeat the Jews, although he's defeated them militarily, by assimilating them into Babylonian culture. So that their cultural distinctives, their distinctiveness as a people just disappears. You see, if he treats them harshly, they might revolt. They might resist. He may have to expend resources to try to rein them in. So rather than doing that, why doesn't he just educate them and give them food? And then he can lull them into being just like the rest of Babylon. So that's what he does. He wants to influence the whole of the Jewish culture by assimilating their leaders into Babylon. It's a brilliant plan. And here's the thing. Daniel and his three friends are a part of this group of exiles who were brought into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Because Daniel and his friends were a part of the cultural elite in Babylon. They were of noble birth. They were good-looking guys. They were smart. They were learned. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be a part of his re-education program for Jerusalem, if you will. But you know what's shocking about all of this as these events unfold? Daniel and his friends allow it. Daniel and his three friends don't resist this re-education. And there's no indication in the text that they were wrong for doing so. It wasn't wrong for them to receive a pagan education. And the reason that's so shocking is because of the content of what they would have been taught during those years of re-education. You see, Babylonian culture was steeped in magic and mysticism and polytheism. And so the expectation would be that Daniel and his friends would be very knowledgeable in these things. Now don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that they bought into it, but it does mean that they mastered the content of it and they could wisely interact with it. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, Jason, cut him some slack. I mean, listen, he's in exile. He's been taken as like a prisoner of war. What's he going to do? He can't resist. But that's where you're wrong. Daniel could have resisted. And it's not because of a lack of 
of moral rectitude, we're going to see in, in the lion's den. And when he doesn't bow down to, to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol, Daniel has plenty of moral rectitude. So if it was sinful for him to receive this education, trust me, he would have taken a stand. He would have resisted. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Now, I'm guessing some of you parents out there, if you're a couple steps ahead of me in what I'm saying here, you're asking yourselves, well, what are the implications of this and how we educate our kids? Because I guarantee you, if I took a poll this morning of how many of you parents would want to enroll your kids in the type of education that Daniel and his friends received, I don't think I'd have any takers. I mean, I don't think most of you let your kids read Harry Potter let alone learn about magic and mysticism and all these sorts of things. Now, keep in mind, Daniel was, and his friends were probably in their early teens. So they were a little bit older, but still, I'm guessing most of you wouldn't even want to put your teenagers in this sort of education program. So parents, here's the takeaway for you in all of this. And I know this is pretty controversial these days. It's not sinful for your children to receive a pagan education. Do you send your kids to public school? That's okay. It's not a sin. Now, is that always the wisest choice? It depends. Depends on all sorts of different factors. Your child, your school district, your church, and what other options you have available to you. Just to name a few. There are so many different factors that go into this. But you see, when it comes to educating our kids, there's no one way prescribed in Scripture for how to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture is clear. You are to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but Scripture does not give us a spe specific way for how to educate them. Each family has to make those decisions wisely, prayerfully, and humbly, not thinking that we've got it right and everybody else has got it wrong. There's no room for that in the kingdom of God in matters of conscience like this. So you see, we can obey Jesus' command to be in the world and not of the world, whether we do public school or Christian school or we homeschool. And I know we've also got some of our college-age kids back. It's nice to have you guys back and some high school students out there as well. And you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, well, what are the educational implications of that for me? Well, let me tell you, I don't care if you go to a Christian school or a non-Christian school, whenever you study something that doesn't fit with your Christian worldview, don't withdraw from it. Don't get me wrong. Don't just embrace it wholesale, but don't just toss it aside either. Press into it and ask yourself the question, what's the biblical response to this question? Ask yourself, how does Jesus want me to think about this? And really, this isn't just a lesson for the high school and college aged among us. This is a lesson for all of us because all of us are constantly bombarded with competing worldviews in the conversations that we have and the music we listen to and the television and movies that we watch and the books that we read. And the answer isn't to retreat from them. The answer is to engage with them wisely and ask ourselves, how would Jesus have us think about this? And you know why we need to ask ourselves that question and ask Jesus that question? Because there isn't one square inch of knowledge or culture that doesn't belong to Jesus. He is Lord of it all. And so we should bring it all before him and ask him, Lord, teach us how to think rightly about these things. So the answer isn't to withdraw. 
It's to thoughtfully, critically, wisely engage. But you know, a pagan education isn't the only thing that Daniel and his friends said yes to. We see in verse 7 that they also say yes to having their names changed. And again, this is, again, something that is very shocking. Because in ancient times, your name actually meant something. It's not like nowadays where your parents have you born and it's like, well, I guess this kind of sounds nice. Your name back then was an important part of your identity in your family and community and uh, most importantly, in your relationship with God. And Daniel and his friends all have names that reflect their relationship with the God of Israel. God's name appears as each one of their, na- of their names. And we can't, I can't show that to you because um, most of us, myself included, don't read Hebrew. Um, but from the commentators I've read, I can assure you that it's definitely there. For example, Daniel's name means God, the God of Israel, is my judge. But when he's in exile, the Babylonians change his name to Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar means uh, may a god, a Babylonian god, protect his life. So now all of their names have been changed and they're no longer associated with the God of Israel. They're now associated with the pagan gods of Babylon. But guess what? Again, they don't resist it. They don't withdraw from it. And the text makes no statement that they were wrong for doing it. And as if that weren't enough, the final thing that Daniel and his friends say yes to is a political career in Babylon. Because you see, that's why the Babylonians were giving them new names and re-educating them. They were priming them and pruning them for a political career in service of Babylon. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Why are Daniel and his friends subjecting themselves to this? Why do they keep saying yes to all this? I mean, we've seen from the text that it isn't sinful for them to say yes to these things. But surely the re-education and the name changes and the political careers aren't the things that they preferred. It's not what they wanted. So why are they saying yes to these things? Well, you see, when the Israelites were taken into exile, into Babylon, they settled outside of the city in a place called Nippur. They didn't settle inside the city of Babylon. They settled outside of the city. And in Jeremiah 28, we read that a false prophet named Hananiah rose up and told the people that it was God's will for them to stay outside of the city. And he told them to pray against the city. And that in two years, now this sounds like good news, right? God would crush Nebuchadnezzar and return the people of Jerusalem back from exile. And many of the people of God were inclined to listen to this prophet. They were tempted to believe what he was saying. But that's when the true prophet of God, Jeremiah, writes a letter to the exiles on behalf of God. And here's what it says in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So why are Daniel and his friends saying yes to these things? Because they're obeying the command of God to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon. 
And brothers and sisters, that's the command that God has given us as well as we live in exile here in America. While we live in exile and while we're away from home in the city of God, we are to seek the welfare of the city of man as we wait for Jesus to return. And how can we do that if we retreat from it? If we withdraw from it and just live in our little Christian enclaves, the answer is we can't. We have to engage because God doesn't call us to transform culture by just lobbing truth grenades at it from a distance. He calls us to transform culture by wisely engaging in it and being close enough to it to influence those around us. So engage with your neighbors. Talk with them every chance you get. Go out of your way to get to know them and enter into their lives. Have them over to eat dinner at your house. And get to know your coworkers. Share your life with them. Share the gospel with them. Don't withdraw. Engage. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, you understand that what God is calling us to here isn't easy, is it? I mean, this is incredibly risky. I mean, if, if we listen to the call of God to not withdraw from this world, but instead engage with it, aren't we running the risk of just blending in with the world and assimilating and making no difference whatsoever? And if you're thinking that, you're right. That's a risk, which is why God goes on to tell us, secondly, don't compromise. Don't compromise. Look at verses 8 through 15 with me. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So up to this point, Daniel and his friends have said yes to a pagan education, yes to having their names changed, and yes to political careers. But this time, they say no. This time, they draw the line and say they won't eat the king's food. But here's the interesting thing. We're not really sure why Daniel and his friends would have been defiled by this food. There are a couple theories out there, but none of them are conclusive because they're inconsistent and, bottom line, the text just doesn't tell us. But at the end of the day, and if you're interested in those theories, I can tell you after the service, but ultimately at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if we know exactly why Daniel and his friends drew the line here. The important thing to note is that they did, in fact, draw the line. And you know, the older I get and the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I've come to see just how important it is for us as Christians to know when and where to draw the line as we live in this world. Now, sometimes it's not hard to know where to draw the line, right? 
where scripture is clear, where scripture has spoken about what is right and what is wrong, that's real easy. That's, that's where we draw the line and we don't cross it. So if you're struggling with whether or not to lie to one of your customers because that's what your boss wants to do, the line is real clear. Draw it. Do not lie. Do not bear false witness. But the, the interesting thing is, most of life isn't made up of black and white decisions, is it? Most of life is made up of decisions where it's not super clear where we're supposed to draw the line. Most of life is made up of wisdom calls. And so the important thing in those situations isn't so much where you draw the line, but that you draw the line. And I think there are two specific dangers that we as Christians face when it comes to drawing those lines. On the one hand, there's the danger of those who see everything, everything, as being very black and white. And these folks tend to draw too many lines. This is my temptation, by the way. For them, everything, everything is a matter of principle. And if they had been one of Daniel's friends, this is probably me, they would have been telling Daniel, Daniel, you're compromising by receiving this pagan education. Daniel, you're compromising by having your name changed. Daniel, you're compromising by receiving this uh, political career in Babylon. And you know what happens to people who see the world this way? They not only withdraw from interacting with the world, you probably could have guessed that, they even end up withdrawing from almost all other believers as well. Because in their mind, everyone else is compromising but them. And so they end up completely isolating themselves. Why? Because they draw too many lines. On the other hand, there's the danger of those who see everything as a gray area. And while these folks speak highly of virtue and character and principle, when push comes to shove... When it comes to getting that commission or that promotion or that acclaim, they consistently cave. If they had been one of Daniel's friends, they would have been telling him, Daniel, you're not breaking any dietary laws. It's not that big of a deal, man. Just eat the food. Get over it. It's not that big of a deal. And you know what happens to these folks? They just assimilate with the rest of the world. They completely lose their distinctness. Why? Because they never draw the line. So let me ask you, I know we're all on the spectrum somewhere, and it probably depends on the day, but which, which extreme do you typically tend to struggle with? You tend to draw too many lines? If so, you need to ask yourself, have I opted out from too much? Have I drawn so many lines that it's isolating me from engaging with the world at all? For example, have you drawn the line too hard? So that family time or time with your spouse can never be interrupted to help someone else? Or have you drawn the line too hard so that you have no relationships with your coworkers or your neighbors? Or perhaps you're at the other extreme and you don't draw the line at all. If so, you need to ask yourself, where am I compromising when I should be drawing the line? For example, I had a, a buddy in college who found himself extremely tempted by the drinking culture of his unbelieving friends. And the reason he found himself tempted to that is because he wanted so badly to be included in their little clique. And so for him, he said, you know what, I'm going to draw the line. He knew that God's word drew the line at don't get drunk. But he said, you know what, for me personally, I'm going to make a wisdom call and draw the line that I'm not going to drink with them. I'm not, he didn't think there was a problem with drinking alcohol. He didn't think it was sinful. 
But he said, listen, I, I know my weakness, so I'm going to draw the line there. And this is my way of saying, listen, I ultimately am not living for you guys. I'm living for the Lord. And so that was the line that he drew. But we have to be careful because here's where it gets a little dicey. I had a buddy, another buddy, who was a part of the exact same group. And he made the decision that he was going to drink with these guys. Again, he drew the line where God did. He wasn't going to get drunk. But he said, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to get to know these guys a little bit better and to enter into their world. So that's where, so he, and the thing is, the guy, my buddy who didn't drink, couldn't tell my buddy who was drinking that he was sinning. If he crossed the line and got drunk, then he could, but otherwise he couldn't tell him that. So the point is, I can't tell you where to draw the line in these wisdom calls. And you can't tell me where to draw the line. Where the word of God is silent, we need to let our consciences dictate the day. Now, having said that, we can see from the text that Daniel wasn't struggling with these decisions all by himself. He wasn't struggling with making these decisions in isolation. He was doing it in the context of solid relationships with other wise believers. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that Daniel was discussing these things with his friends because he's making these decisions for them. So I'm guessing that they were talking about it. And you know what? We should do the same thing. Of course, we should read our Bibles and pray to the Lord for wisdom, but we should also seek wise counsel from other believers, from our pastors, from our elders and grace group leaders and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, Daniel was humble enough to know that he needed help in making these difficult and costly decisions, so he didn't try to make them on his own. He did it in the context of a believing community, and we should do the same thing. But you know what? There's still one big question that we have to answer. Why do we even have this tendency to either withdraw from the world or compromise with the world? What's going on in our hearts that tempts us to respond in one of these two sinful ways? Well, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that it's because of our fear. It's because we're afraid. We fear man more than we fear God. And so instead of obeying God and wisely engaging with the world, we either withdraw or we compromise. It's because of our fear, which is why God comes to us and seeks to comfort us by saying, lastly, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look at verses 17 through 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the, the, chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, by God's grace, things work out pretty well here for Daniel and his friends, don't they? But I want to be, make sure you don't misapply the text here. And think that the reason that we shouldn't be afraid is because things will always work out well for us. If I was a prosperity preacher, that would be my message this morning. But that's not the point of the text. 
Because the reality is we often don't see everything work out in our lives, do we? Jesus, is pro- Jesus promises we're going to experience suffering and persecution until the very end. But God gives us two specific reasons for why we don't have to be afraid as we live in exile. Two specific reasons. First of all, we don't need to be afraid because God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. And I know it doesn't look like that from our text. After all, God's people are defeated and the temple in which he dwells has been ransacked. I mean, would God allow that if he were really in control of all things? Looks like a defeat. It doesn't look like he's in control. But if we look closer at the text, we can see that scattered throughout the story is the truth that yes, God is in control. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So in other words, the only reason Jerusalem has been defeated and the temple raided is because it was a part of God's sovereign plan. See, brothers and sisters, even when it looks like this world is completely out of control, even when it looks like God's plans for our good and his glory are failing, God is behind all of it. He still reigns. Or look at verse 9 of chapter 1. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So even in the midst of exile... In a foreign land where foreign gods are worshipped, God is in control. And here's the thing. He will be faithful to his faithful servants. He will provide for them and he will protect them. And lastly, look at verse 17 of chapter 1. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Again, each, three, each of these three instances, the same word is used there. God gave, God gave, God gave. And here, God gave Daniel and his friends such skill and wisdom in the ways of the Babylonians that verse 20 says, the king found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdoms. God reigns even when it doesn't look like it. And you know what? I don't know about you, but that's a truth that I constantly need to be reminded of. And my guess is that there's plenty of you in here who need to be reminded of that as well. Because I know that for many of you here this morning, it feels like your whole world is just falling apart. Everything that you know, everything that you love has been ripped away from you. Everything familiar, everything cherished. And you wonder to yourself, does God reign even in the midst of this? Because it certainly doesn't look like it. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to know that he is. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is using his power and his might for your good. He's caring for you. It may not look like it. It may not feel like it. And it may not be how you would have chosen things. But he is working everything for your good. And for his glory. So in your loss and in your pain and through your tears, turn to him. Look to him. He does not turn away from you, even in your weakest moments. Instead, he draws near and comforts you, letting you know that even in these foreign circumstances, he is with you and he is providing for you. And he has a home 
that's waiting for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you far, far away from this foreign land. But there's still one more fear that we have to deal with because we don't just struggle with fear about our circumstances, do we? We also struggle with fear about our sin. You see, I can't stand before you this morning and tell you that I perfectly lived in the world without being of the world. I can't tell you that I didn't withdraw. I can't tell you that I didn't compromise. I can't tell you that I wasn't afraid. And I know that's what God's law requires of me. And that's what I tried to do, but I still failed. So I tremble with fear. But that's when God comes and comforts us by saying, that's why I've sent my son. You see, Daniel is an example for us of how to live wisely in this world, but even Daniel failed to do so perfectly. So ultimately, Daniel's life and example are meant to point us to the greater Daniel who was to come, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who willingly entered into exile, leaving heaven to come to earth, who was truly abandoned by the Father on the cross for our sins so that we never will be, and who perfectly engaged the world, not withdrawing, not compromising, because Jesus didn't fear man or what man could do to him. He perfectly feared the Lord. And brothers and sisters, the good news this morning is that he did that for you, and he did that for me. And here's the amazing thing. Because we are in Jesus, because we're united to him by grace, through faith, God reckons us not of this world, even as Jesus is not of this world. That's what John 17 says. We now have Jesus' track record of perfectly engaging the world. And all of our failures of sinfully withdrawing and compromising have been paid for by Jesus on the cross. So guess what that means? You don't have to be afraid to engage with the world. Will you fail? Will you sin? Will you unwisely engage or withdraw at times? Certainly, without a doubt. But you have the freedom in Jesus to live as wisely as you can. And when you fail, to then repent and know you're forgiven and learn from your failings. And grow in grace. But you don't need to be afraid. You see, the gospel gives us the freedom to stumble in seeking to obey God's word because we have a perfect Savior who never stumbled. And it pleases Him. It pleases Jesus when we seek to engage the world for His sake and for His glory. So let's get to it. Let's live as Jesus prayed we would in this world but not of this world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we were once your enemies. We once were slaves of the prince of the power of the air, slaves of our own passions. And we were a part of the kingdom of darkness. We were owned by the city of man. That was our home at one point in time. But Father, it was when we were in that state that you sent your son, Jesus, to become a man and to live the perfect life and die in our place so that we would be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. And Father, we're thankful 
That because of what he's done, his perfect engagement, his perfectly wise engagement with the world, that's now been credited to us. And all of our failures have been cast on him on the cross. And so we stand before you as having his perfect track record justified. And Father, we pray that in this newfound freedom that we would strive all the harder as your spirit empowers us and as your word guides us and as we live in community with one another to engage this world to love our neighbors as ourselves, Father, and to preach the gospel to them. Father, help us to engage. We are a fearful people. Help us to see that you are in control of all things and you're working all things for our good. And so we can be fearless and we can love with reckless abandon all to the praise of your glorious grace. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.